Well, as you're turning in a copy of God's Word to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, I want to take a moment and, and thank again uh, our musicians and our singers. Uh, Marsha's been filling in for Jan, who's on vacation, and Sandra, we're thankful to have on the organ for our singers, for Diane and her leadership, and Kim on the flute. Um, we are very grateful uh, for your service to the Lord Jesus. Um, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. A tough text, a fun text, where we learn about suffering and how God uses it uh, in our lives to make us more like Jesus. Um, Let's go to the Lord and ask for His blessing upon the reading and preaching of His most holy word. Lord, we thank You for the word that You have given us, Your mind and print, that it is trustworthy and true. Lord, help us this morning by Your Spirit. Send forth Your Spirit and work these truths deep into the um, very nooks and crannies of our heart that we might be more like Jesus. Pray all these things in His name. Amen. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 19. Hear now the Word of God. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice... Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Don't be surprised when suffering comes your way because God is at work in your life. This is the uncomfortable truth of walking as believers this side of the Jordan. Don't be surprised when suffering comes your way because God is at work in your life. Perspective really is everything, isn't it? When you take two people and put them into the same situation, one will often sink and the other one will often swim Largely because of um, perspective and expectations. What's normal? What's right? What is expected? Take, for instance, a a petty example. If, um, If you think about an astronaut living in space, when he wakes up in the morning, it is normal for him to be floating. It is normal for him to go to drink Uh, some water and squirt it into his mouth all the way from over here and not miss. Uh, However, if you wake up in the morning and your dog Fluffy is floating over your head and the water out of the water pitcher next to your bed is is, is floating in the air beside you, you're going to respond in surprise and alarm because of your expectation and your understanding of what is normal. I think so often we see the Christian life and view it through the lens of of our own unique American experience that we've experienced over the last several hundred years. 
and think that suffering is something that really isn't part of the Christian life. You have this ongoing Christian life, and then over here and over here and over here, you may have some suffering. But really, if you're a true Christian, a strong Christian, then we really won't know suffering. But the reality is quite the opposite. The uncomfortable truth is that the Christian life is full of suffering. In fact, even as we look to our Savior, who is um, the one to whom we are united, is the standard for what life perhaps should look like in some ways, not in others. His life was full, full of suffering. We have, I think, bought into our culture... As we think about what it means to be a Christian in America, largely believers, you know, we experience middle class incomes, we have nice homes, we have food to eat, we have access to health care, whether we have insurance or not. And we think if we are a faithful Christian, then these things are our rights, these things are part of the Christian life, but in the reality that we have prayed for in our pastoral prayer for millions and hundreds of millions of believers around the world, being a Christian means you don't have access to any of those things. What is expected in the Christian life? Do we walk into the Christian life? Do we interact with the Christian life? Do we live the Christian life in the expectation that suffering is part of life? Or are our lives upside down because we don't think it should be there? I think Peter's, and therefore the Lord, saying quite clear here, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when suffering happens. Because this is perhaps when the Lord is at most at work in our lives. That's uncomfortable, isn't it? The Lord does not delight in suffering. It's not to say that. But He uses and sends forth it that we might grow more like Him. We see this summarized in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter says, don't be surprised. When fiery trials come your way. There are two senses in which the word fiery is used in this text. And the first, um, I think, is quite clear in that it means that these tests, these trials, these hardships aren't insignificant. But you know, it really does hurt to go through suffering. It really is harmful and, and tough. And we struggle when we go through these times of hardship. I don't think he has in mind stumping our toe or the suffering that comes when someone erases your favorite show off the DVR. These are fiery trials, intense trials that happen to us. Why would we be surprised? It's all about perspective. It's all about expectation. Um, I'd like to submit that I think we're often surprised when suffering comes our way because we've bought into some bad theology. That we've bought into some really unhelpful teachers that are out there. And they've influenced us in ways that that we're not even aware. The first thing that we can see is that um, it is a misconception that if we have enough faith, then we will not suffer. There's this false stream within the broad church that if we have just strong enough faith, we will not suffer in this life. We will not face illness and calamity at home, struggles with sin and temptation, even mental illness, unless we don't have enough faith. Therefore, every problem that comes our way simply is because we do not have something inside of us, enough of it. And that just brings guilt. 
you know, the result of this is that when we meet trials and suffering, we, we become so inwardly focused that we take our eyes off of our Savior. When we think about our faith, we say that faith saves us. That's really shorthand for Christ saving us. That Christ is the object of our faith. He is the one who saves us. Not the feeling that I have every morning of whether I have strong faith or weak faith. Because if you're like me, it waxes and wanes from time to time. And yet our Savior does not. He does not change. There's no shadow of change with Him. There's no variation with Him. Every cramp, every cold, every cancer is not as a result of not having enough faith within us. We can look at the life of Christ, right? A man of of perfect faith, who never once stopped believing, who never once took his eyes off of his father, and yet his life was full of suffering. But I think also another lie we buy into is this idea that God owes me a good, suffering-free life. It's easy to get into this one, right? In some way, I think it affects us all. If we live morally clean lives, then God owes us a good and vibrant life. He does give us that, although His definition of life perhaps is different than ours of eternal life. But the going, the thinking goes like this, that if I live a clean life, then God owes me material and physical and health-related blessings until I go to heaven. Now, praise the Lord, He often does give us those things in His goodness as our Father. But you know, the only thing that God does, uh, owes us is His justice and judgment. Anything He gives us is His grace and mercy Have you heard of the Eastern view of karma? Karma is the false doctrine that if we put out good things in the universe, then good things come back to us. Um, And I think oftentimes we put a Christian veneer on this and, uh, and, and believe it. That if I'm a good person, God will never bring suffering into my life. And the reality is just just the opposite. The reality is that God does not deal with us based on karma. He deals with us on a much better basis. He deals with us based on His Son. That we are His adopted sons and daughters. That's a much better place to operate from. Which is exceedingly dear in seasons of suffering. But I think the one that is the most pernicious and the one that is most up and running in our hearts is that we aren't supposed to struggle That when suffering comes our way, we are supposed to be immune to it. That that when we go through fiery trials, we aren't actually supposed to struggle. That it is weakness, that it is a bad thing to tell others that we need help. Um, I heard a minister once say, don't be more pious than Jesus. The idea, you know, that that when we have hard times, it's okay to struggle. And it's okay to have a hard time. It's okay to not know what's going to happen. It's okay to struggle with fear. It's, It's okay to cry. It's okay to ask for help. It's okay to tell the truth when people ask you how you're doing. 
You know, not the southern version. How you doing? Oh, I'm great. You know, and your arm's hanging off and your life's falling apart. You know, how are you really doing? It's okay to tell people you need help. When we think about Jesus, did He keep the stiff upper lip when Lazarus died? No, my friends. The text says, it doesn't say He cried or shed a tear. It says He wept. When He was in the garden on Thursday night, when He was betrayed, He he cried blood. And the crowd sinned against Him. Sure, He had compassion, but He also was sad. He grew tired and He slept. And He knew what righteous anger felt like. We do ourselves a great disservice if we aren't honest about what we're going through. Now, we can take it too far, right? I mean, we can go on and complain, 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 complain. That's not good. But the Gospel allows us to be honest with others about our suffering. Indeed, allows the church to be the church, right? We need Christ and we need His church. So, beloved, don't don't suffer alone, please. Invite your brothers and sisters into your suffering. Don't pretend that you have it all together. That's actually just sin. That's pride. Be honest. The Lord and His church are for you. Why? Because the suffering uncomfortably is part of the Christian life. Don't be surprised when it comes because it, in these, it is in these seasons that the Lord is especially at work in your life. Which leads us to the second use of the word fiery. The second use of the word fiery, as we learn in verse, uh, verse 12, uh, refers to the process by which metal is made stronger. It is the process of heating up and cooling down and heating up and cooling down and bringing it to a melting point and, and skimming off the dross so that it is made stronger. When we read here that the Lord tests us, it doesn't, it's not being used in a word in a way that we would use as if someone is testing our patience. You know, because when I say someone's testing my patience, it's already broken. You know, there's there's no real test going on. It means I've failed. Or like someone gives you a test at school that you fail. That's not how it's used. The word test here is a gracious instrument of the Lord to make us stronger in our faith. To make us stronger in His grace. To grow us as believers in Christ. When you work with metals, you keep heating up in order to bring the impurities out. And the reason that God does this in our life is for our own good and for His glory. Because He he has made us for something. He's made us for His glory and for His enjoyment, for good works. We see this in Ephesians 2.10. For we are His workmanship. That's a a significant word, right? When we think of the Lord sitting at the bench with with the crucible there. We are His worksmanship. He is working on us. We are His worksmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should work in them. My grandfather was a, a, um, a craftsman of a sort. We would often, I know I've used this before, but it works so well. We would often get together and, and melt lead to make bullets. And we would buy, we would, he would go to um, auto stores and he would get the wheel weights, the things that go on your wheels that, to balance them. This is really dirty and cheap lead. And we would get them and we'd throw them in the pot and crank it up to 750 degrees in order to melt these dirty, very dirty uh, wheel weights. 
And you know, we could not, upon them their melting, we could not immediately make bullets. Because there were so many impurities in this stuff. There was so much brake dust. There was so much gunk in these lead wheel weights that first we had to purify them. And the way you do it is you throw flux. We threw beeswax into it and we would stir it up and y'all flames would just be going everywhere. Uh, a few hairs got singed in the process when you got a little too excited about it. And, and because of this, the, the moisture and the flux would, would draw the impurities to the top and you would get an old spoon and, and skim them out. And you'd do it over and over again until what you started with was something dirty, but what you ended with was pure. And you could look down and see your own image in the shimmer of the molten lead, ready to go. And this is what Christ does with us. And He uses suffering many, many times to accomplish this purpose. Being in the furnace is not fun. We shouldn't be sadists. We should not enjoy the suffering. But even as someone told me this week, it's no fun to be in the furnace, but it sure is good having been there. Because this is how the Lord grows us for His glory, for the works that He has created us for. And just like those bullets, just like that lead was made for bullets for a purpose, for a use, and they were no good until they were purified, so too we have been made for good works and God is purifying us, burning away the dross, the unhelpful attitudes, the fleshly thoughts, the pride and the arrogance, so that He might use us more and more for His glory. Now He has declared us righteous at our salvation. We are righteous before Him. And now He is completing the process that He has begun. And my friends, uncomfortably, it comes often through suffering. But He doesn't just do it for us individually. He also does it as a church. Now that's uncomfortable too, right? We see this in verses 16, or excuse me, 17 and 18. Uh, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now this is clearly a warning to those who don't know the Lord Jesus. That they will face the judgment of God apart from Christ's love and the robing of His righteousness. A terrible place to be. But when we think of the word judgment within the context of the house of God, the church, we have to read this in context of the fact that Christ has taken all the wrath and punishment that we deserve individually and collectively. This is referring back to this process of testing, of, of making us pure and pure, just like he would write, Jesus would write in Revelation 2 and 3 to the churches in Revelation, that if they were, their lampstand was going to stay, if they were going to be used by the Lord, then they had to get their act together, right? They had to get rid of the false teachers and those who were having a perverting influence on the church so that they might be used for His glory. How does he do this? How does he do it individually? How does he do it in a church, uh, universally and the local church? Often through suffering. It's uncomfortable. But he uses it for his glory and for our good. Well, very quickly, there are different kinds of suffering and different kinds of responses. We see this in verses 13 through 16. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. The first we see is that the um, Petrine community, the, the people to whom Peter is writing, they are suffering as Christians. Verse 13, sharing in Christ's sufferings. Verse 14, insulted for the name of Christ. Verse 16, suffering as a Christian. They were facing real issues in society. They were not being killed at this point. That would come later, a few decades later. They are being ostracized by their family and by society. And to them, he says, rejoice. Rejoice. You're blessed because you're suffering for the sake of Jesus. Now for us, we aren't being jailed at this point. We um, aren't being killed at this point. But you know, there is a cost for following Jesus. There's a cost for following Jesus. When the crowd is going one way and you're going the other, it will cost you. When your boss wants you to cut corners and not report certain income, that will cost you. When people find out you're a Christian, therefore you can't watch the filthy shows on TV that are popular these days, like Game of Thrones, that will cost you. Um, A church planner who was here in May, Doug McNutt, uh, Christie's brother-in-law, tells the story of his 10-year-old son being slapped hard by another child on the playground, assaulted, not just a playful slap, but a, a hard slap, because he said he was a Christian. He has known suffering as a Christian perhaps than any of us. And he's a 10-year-old boy. Um, how is he to respond? How are we to respond? By rejoicing. By considering ourselves blessed. Standing firm, as we find in verse 16, not being ashamed. That's a reference to not being ashamed and, and, sta- and, and falling away. Of, of not standing up for the Lord. Stand firm. Do not be ashamed. Declare your love for the Lord. Take the consequences. Because here's the thing. They may insult you, but the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What can man do to you in whose nostrils is breath, Isaiah wrote. But there is another type of suffering, and that's the suffering that comes because we're sinners. God is not glorified by this suffering. The reality is that we are all murderers, as we see in verse 16, because we know in righteous anger. The reality is we are all thieves because we constantly steal the glory from God. We are all evildoers because we are constantly struggling with evil thoughts in our minds. And we are all meddlers because it's a lot easier to talk about others than to deal with our own mess. And God isn't glorified by that kind of suffering. But here's the good news. That He uses even that kind of suffering. And we respond with trust and repentance. Because Christ came to save the ungodly, not those who have it all together. This is the good news of the gospel. That He saves a wretch like me. Well, how are we to deal with everyday suffering? Certainly not in this text, but it's true. We, we live in a world that has fallen and broken. How are we to deal with with living in a fallen world, how we deal when we face suffering because we are believers, I think we have the answer here in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. 
We entrust our souls to a faithful creator. One who creates is sovereign and in charge and he owns it. And so we entrust our souls to a faithful creator who made us and made this world. Nothing happens apart from his will. Nothing, apart, nothing happens because it's an accident or coincidence. And ultimately we entrust our souls to the one who came and died for us. There is great tension with suffering, right? God is good and God is powerful and yet we suffer and there's great suffering in the world. Even now, North Korean believers are dying in labor camps. This is a bad thing. How do we reconcile those things? There's great tension there. And ultimately, the answer does not come from a set of doctrines. There are are good theological answers for those things. Ultimately, it comes in a person. In Jesus. That He would suffer on the cross, redemptively for His people. That those who suffer might have somewhere to put their faith and their trust and receive life, eternal life. Not because they're good, actually because they're bad, Christ came. But those who put their faith and trust in Christ Jesus will not be ashamed of the day when Christ returns, but will share in His glory, even as we have shared in his sufferings. Do you know this person? Do you know the person, Jesus Christ? He came and died for his people that we might have life. And today you too might have eternal life if you turn to him and ask him to be your Savior. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the grace of Jesus. We thank you that you, O triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, love wretches like us. Help us in our suffering to keep our eyes on Jesus. Keep our eyes on the prize that we might share in your glory even as we share in your sufferings. I pray for those, Lord, who are suffering in our midst that you might give them grace and endurance this day. Hope and peace. pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. To conclude our service, let's stand and sing the first and last verses. The first and last verses of 404, The Solid Rock.